time of celebration with their families and friends and uh, are just around the the idea of a risen Savior. It's an amazing thing when you think about the work that Christ did for us um, and just even of all the different Christian denominations, that's one of the tenets of the faith, I think, that is uh, universal among all those. So what a blessing it is. And then for us particularly, I think, to come and, you know, be ministered to as we were through the Word last week. But we're going to pick up where we left off in Mark. Um, just since we weren't in class last week, uh, do a real quick um, update on where we're at. We're going to be looking at the parable in Mark chapter 12 this morning, starting uh, the parable of the tenants, but it helps me to kind of go back and remember where we were. And this this scene is is still the same, right? We've got to keep that in our minds. Nothing's changed. Christ is still, you know, ministering to the 12 that are with him. He's been into the temple. This is his third public entrance into Jerusalem during the Passover week. And um, again, you know, we, I kept reading and you hear on TV and radio the Passion Week. And I struggled uh, with that word, you know. And, and, and so I looked it up, as I told you all a couple of weeks ago. And, and it, it's where we get the word suffering comes from that. So it's the week of suffering, of course, not our suffering, right, but our Savior's suffering. So it's still that same period that we're looking at here. So Jesus, as you remember, is in the temple. He's teaching. He's walking around, which is the typical rabbinic uh, style of teaching. And the the people followed him, and the priests and the scribes and the elders are, are here and, you know, representing a uh, uh, representation of the the Sanhedrin. I don't think the whole Sanhedrin was there, but they had their representatives, and they hit him with a very legitimate question. You know, about what authority are you doing these things? You know, he just the day before he he turned over all the the commerce in the court of the Gentiles, and he he as I said, I, I, this is where I'm at. I'm not saying you're there, you need to be there. But I think he also halted the Jewish worship style there because he wouldn't allow them to even carry utensils uh, for temple worship through the court of the Gentiles. So he really rocked them. He not only stopped their commerce, but he stopped their worship. And so they want to know, you know, they're kind of in the mindset, as we said two weeks ago, of, you know, what credentials do you have to be doing this? And and we got to that that really is a good question, isn't it? I mean, you know, if somebody came and did that here, we would want to know what gives you the authority to do those things. I mean, these guys, corrupt as they were, they were at least in charge of the Jewish religious system. So that's a legitimate question. But Jesus, uh, as we saw, turns the table on the on these interrogators, and he wants to know what their credentials are. So he asked them a question. You know, he, he asked, uh, you know, what was the baptism of John from heaven or from man? Answer me. So the counter question, as we said, that was, again, a very common uh, thing among rabbis to, to go back and forth with questions. And they, they uh, keep in mind, were trying to destroy Jesus. And, of course, he knew this. So Luke 19, 47 and 48 tells us, and he was teaching daily in the temple. The chief priests and the scribes and the principal men of the people were seeking to destroy him. So his counter question 
put them between the rock and the hard place, right? Because John the Baptist was a very popular forerunner among the people. And this question drove these guys into a corner, and they didn't want to answer, right? So they discussed it with one another, and, you know, they, they came to the conclusion, if we say from heaven, he will say, why then did you not believe him? But shall we say from man, they were afraid of the people, for they all held that John really was a prophet. So here they are. They, uh, in their answer, they didn't say, we don't want to answer your question, which that would have at least, as I said a couple of weeks ago, that would have at least been honest. You know, you know what, we're just not going to answer you. But instead they come back with this conceived, you know, this idea they came up with on their own of, we don't know. You know, they did know. They just didn't want to answer. So with their answer, Jesus had effectively uh, caught them in their hypocrisy. Uh, and all he, uh, in, in their answer, really what they did was they made themselves look ridiculous. Well, Neil made it back from Israel. Did you see the Temple Mount? No? We're talking about that now, so I thought it might be neat. To, you did? All right. Maybe next week we'll have him give us a show and tell. To, so, well, good to have you back. I'm sure your wife was a little nervous with the things of our world. So they really, through all this, they, they had made themselves look ridiculous, right? And Jesus says, you know, tell, you know, tell me, uh, neither will I tell you by what authority I do these things. And I gave you a quote by William Barclay that I think is really good that sums up this whole story. He says, this whole thing is actually a vivid example of what happens to mankind when we will not face the truth, when we don't face the truth. And, you know, you've been there, right, as I have. When you don't face the truth, you actually, as time unfolds with you, you, you begin to say more ridiculous things. You know, you can't keep a lie forever, right, as a, as a believer. Why is that? I mean, even as an unbeliever, right? Children, parents, right? I mean, the kids, you know how that unfolds. But why as adults, as Christians, can we not keep a lie forever? What do you think? Pardon? Conviction, Conviction yeah. I mean, isn't that an amazing thing? I mean, is that, that's one of the, I'm not saying I, well, this sounds weird, but you'll get the point. I think. I'm not saying I like that. Right? But thank God for it, right? Um, and that was one of the things I noticed very early on after being a Christian. Um, the guy that uh, led me to the Lord committed to come to my house every... My wife and I were saved at the same time, and this guy committed to come to our house every Tuesday night for four hours and one-on-one and -on -one or one-on-two disciple us. And I'll never forget this as long as I live, that I, that was happening to me, that conviction. And I, I didn't grow up in the church, so I didn't know anything about this Holy Spirit living inside of me. But boy, was it evident. And that next week, that was on a Monday, and he came back the following Tuesday. That week, I used God's name in vain six times. How did I know it was six times? You know, you ever think about that? I mean, every time I did, it was like somebody stuck me in the gut with a knife. 
And I, I remember telling him when he came back, and by the way, it would have been 60 times in 60, or six times in 60 seconds the day before that happened to me, right? So all of a sudden, when I did this, something, I, I mean, I, it was conviction, but I didn't know what it was. And I told him, I remember telling him he came over, I was um, smoking a cigarette, and he was, he came and we were on the back deck, and I'm blowing smoke in his face, and he said, well, how was your week? And I said, David, the weirdest thing has happened to me. And he's like, what? And I said, I don't know. That's what I'm asking you. And he's like, well, what's going on? I, who knows what he thought I was getting ready to say, you know. And I said, well, I cussed God's name six times this week, you know. And, and every time I did, I felt like I was being punched in the gut. And he just started laughing, you know. He said, I think you got the Holy Spirit, you know. <laughs> and I was like, well, cool, but... Thank God for conviction, right? I mean, what an awesome tool that is. And, and, and that's what's going on with these guys, perhaps, is that they, they looked ridiculous with their answer. And as Barclay tells us, you know, that when we won't face the truth, we look ridiculous. And you know that, you know, being parents and as kids try and lie their way out of things. But... So after putting these guys to silence and shame, Jesus proceeded to expose their true character, their, expose their dishonesty. And by their answer, they showed that they just flat out did not care about the truth. But Tim, who uh, do you think in their heart of hearts, who do you think they thought Jesus was? I think thought and probably knew were two different things at this point. Um, they They had the... The um, they had documentation, you know, from the Old Testament. I mean, they knew historically that there was going to be a Messiah. They knew, they heard the uh, the talk of the people, you know, as we see, you know, in previous portions of Mark and the other Gospels as well, that in John the Baptist's testimony, you know. So I think they they were thinking that maybe he was the Messiah, but they couldn't, couldn't accept the fact that, that he really was. And that's, I think, what we'll see unfold in this parable as he be- begins to really bring judgment upon them. And their answer at the end, as we'll see, is that they want to destroy him. You know, so they felt threatened by him. And I mean, really, even if you look at, you know, we'll get there in a while. That's this was really, really difficult to be where we're at in this gospel right now with Easter just happening. Of course, the perfect timing would have been, you know, to have it all unfold like that when we got there. So it's hard for me to go back because we were just there last week in our celebration of the resurrection. But um, the fact that, you know, even when they get to the point of they want somebody else released other than him so they can crucify Christ, you know. So I, I think they probably went back and forth in their minds, perhaps like some people do today as we share the gospel with them. You know, a lot of people, especially in, in what I do for a living, a lot of people want, uh, they want out of a circumstance or they want out of trouble that they have in their lives and there's somebody like us, believers that maybe are in their life, and we have the opportunity at that point to share Christ with them, which we're telling them this is what you ultimately really need. That sounds good, right? I deal with people that struggle with addiction. So, 
you know, there's a lot of people reach what they think in their mind is their bottom of their sinful lifestyle, and they want help. And then their their minds, after being sober for several weeks or a month, their minds start to kind of revert back. Well, I don't really want the God help. That all sounded good. I'm sober now. You know, so there's it's kind of a dual thing. Does that make sense? Well, yes, except that if you had any doubts whatsoever, that if, if there was even a, a hint in your mind that it could really be the Son of God, mm-hmm. you'd think twice before wanting him crucified. Sure. Yeah, well, you would think, but I th- that's what we're going to end with. I'll, I'll tell you now. That's what we're going to end with, and that's what we're going to look at next week is this fear of man. And that's what these guys have. Well, that gets back to that, you know, when Jesus said, when they said, show us something, and he already have, and then he says, a wicked and perverse generation seeks for a sign, you know, to... You know, uh, the, two main, the two main sects of, of the Sanhedrin were the Sadducees and the Pharisees, or, you know, the Democrats and the Republicans. <laughs> I mean, the, you know, the... His wife tapped him when he said that. Sadducees didn't believe there was anything supernatural. Okay, and Jesus running around doing supernatural stuff all the time. You know, they just wanted to, you know, somehow sweep him away. The Pharisees believed in all the supernatural stuff, but they had all the weight of all the commentaries that they had been given. And so when Jesus does something like taking dirt, like God made Adam from dirt, and he spits in it like God breathed into Adam, and he fixes, you know, an imperfect man. The, what he's doing is showing himself as creator God there. They could not deny that. So they latched on to their, their extra biblical commentaries about, about the Sabbath, and they, they convicted him on the basis of their you know, commentaries of things God didn't write. And so I think they were really convicted that he was the son of God, but he didn't honor their system. He blew their system up, (laughs) you know, and they didn't know what to do with that. And so they they decided, well, you know, if he's really Messiah, certainly he can't be crucified. Yeah. You know, not realizing that was God's plan. But as we'll see, the fear of man was more powerful on them than the fear of God was. And that that's a key point as he ends chapter 11 with and then ends this parable with as well. So Jesus goes about and, you know, the fact that they didn't care about his authority, all they cared about was their power and their self-interest. He proceeds to expose them by telling this parable in Mark chapter 12. So let's read that, uh, Mark chapter 12. Verses 1 through 12. He says, And he began to speak to them in parables. A man planted a vineyard and put a fence around it and dug a pit for the wine press and built a tower and leased it to tenants and went into another country. When the season came, he sent a servant to the tenants to get from them some of the fruit of the vineyard. And they took him and beat him and sent him away empty-handed. 
Again, he sent to them another servant, and they struck him on the head and treated him shamefully. And he sent another, and him they killed. And so with many others, some they beat and some they killed. He had still one other, a beloved son. Finally, he sent him to them, saying, They will respect my son. But those tenants said to one another, This is the heir. Come, let us kill him, and the inheritance will be ours. And they took him and killed him and threw him out of the vineyard. What will the owner of the vineyard do? He will come and destroy the tenants and give the vineyard to others. Have you not read the scripture? The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. This was the Lord's doing, and it is marvelous in our, in our eyes. And they were seeking to arrest him, but feared the people, for they perceived that God had told the parable against them. That, uh, that he had told, I said God, same thing, right? Um, so they left him. And went away. So this this parable, as I said, is often referred to as a judgment parable, and certainly it is, right? This would devastate them. But at the same time, we see that it was actually very gracious because of the convicting summary of God's dealing with his people was meant to reach their hearts. And we talked a couple weeks ago about the hearts, right? The unwillingness to answer his question was a heart problem. Jesus is constantly focused on addressing the hearts of mankind. Why is that? Do you remember when, when Tim Ryan was teaching us and we looked at this in Mark chapter 7, I think it, it was? Do you remember? What, what is, why is Jesus constantly at the heart? You, those of you that go to the biblical counseling training that we have, that's the whole thing. Everything focuses around the heart. Why? It's our worship center. It's our worship center, right. And everything there, what? Proverbs 4.23. You know, guard, yeah, everything flows out of our hearts. Guard your hearts with all diligence, right? Because from our hearts flows the springs of our lives. And that's actually, this is gracious of Jesus, to tell this parable, to expose their hearts so that, you know, again, another opportunity to see um, who he is. For this, par- this parable, for us, for you and I, <clears throat> is not meant only to be a slice of ancient history, but it should be seen as a grid through which we can evaluate our own lives as well. So Jesus begins by picturing God's hope for Israel as being like the hope of a man who built a vineyard. And he waited expectantly for, its, for it to produce the crop. Now, everybody would have understood what he was talking about here. The, the, the idea of making a comparison with, with Israel of being a vineyard was a very common thought to, to the Jewish mind. Um, Psalm 80 um, goes into great detail of that. I'll read a couple of verses out of Psalm 80, verses 8 through 16. You, you brought a vine out of Egypt. Okay, who's that talking about, right? Israel, right? You drove out the nations and planted it. You cleared the ground for it. It took deep root and filled the land. The mountains were covered with its shade, the mighty cedars with its branches. It sent out its branches to the sea and its shoots to the river. Why then have you broken down its walls so that all who pass along the way pluck its fruit? The boar from the, har- from the forest ravages it, and all that move in the field feed on it. Turn again, O God of hosts. Look down from heaven and see. Have regard for this vine. 
you know, so this is a very common concept for the nation of Israel to be compared to a vine, to a vineyard. In, in this parable in particular, Jesus uses phrases directly from Isaiah chapter 5, verses 1 through 7. And his hearers that were standing there in the temple knew that the, vine, that the vineyard parable was Israel. Why? Because they certainly would have known um, Isaiah chapter 5. And verses 1, I'll read a few of these too. Isaiah 5, 1. Let me sing for my beloved my love song concerning his vineyard. My beloved had a vineyard on a very fertile hill. He dug it, he cleared it of stones, and planted it with choice vines. He built a watchtower in the midst of it and hewed out a wine vat in it. And he looked to the, for it to yield grapes, but it yielded wild grapes. And he goes on in verse 7, uh, For the vineyard of the Lord of hosts is the house of Israel. So again, they flat out knew exactly what he was talking about. This is Israel. So I was intrigued that ever since I've started this um, section in Mark and, and all this talk about the temple, I'm always trying to dig up more and more stuff about the temple. I'm really intrigued with all that for some reason. Um, you know, if you guys have a great resource, let me know. Yeah, I'd love to look at that as well. I, but I've, I wondered for the, the common person here that was just in the area for Passover, hearing this, you know, if they would make the connection of the, of the vineyard. And I found a, a really neat thing that um, um, where Jesus was standing in the temple teaching this, there was a visible to everybody there was a carved grapevine 105 feet high. Okay, so you would be able to see that, right? 105 feet, that's pretty big. It was sculpted on, around the door of the temple, which led from the porch to the holy place. The branches and the tendrils and the leaves were of the finest gold available. The great bunches hanging on them were costly jewels. And Herod, King Herod, had first placed it there in rich patriotic Jews over time added on to it and uh, they would contribute new ornaments and leaves and grape clusters to it so it, it would really almost have a sacred meaning to the uh, to the Jewish mind so when Jesus is, is talking about this you know that probably some of the people were looking up at the door there and seeing this 105 foot high thing there. So very, very common um, idea to the mind of the Jew. So in verse 1, he starts out and says, a man planted a vineyard, put a fence around it, dug a pit for the wine press and built a tower and leased it to the tenants and went into another country. So as I said, they are now beginning to understand that the owner is the Lord and that he'd taken great pains to plant this vineyard to make it healthy and productive, right? He put a fence around it to keep wild animals out, just like some of you, perhaps, who plants a garden? You know, do you put things around the garden to keep wildlife out of it? Um, me and some of the guys were, uh, John David moved recently in Town Lake, and I'm telling you what, if you want to kill a deer, don't go to the big forest. Just go over to Town Lake. I've never seen anything like it. I pull down his street every time. 
And that one yard down at the very end of that cul-de-sac, and there's four or five of them just looking around, you know. Wow, we could just pop one right here. Um, you probably have to use a bow so you don't cause the neighbors to be excited. But, um, but you know, we, we put things around our yards. You know, you, you, when you're planting a yard uh, or a garden, you, you especially got to protect your garden, but even shrubbery, uh, you know, you can look on um, the Internet and find shrubs that they'll leave alone. They might come up and bite it once. They don't like the taste of it. And, you know, it's always been that way, right? Animals look for cultivated things to eat because we go to great care to take care of them. And as we read in Psalm 80 a minute ago, the, the boar from the forest ravages it. So they put a fence around this vineyard that was planted that Jesus is talking about to keep the wild animals out but that's the you know the what's the right way to say that the the physical side of it I guess you know not the spiritual side but keep that in mind so he dug a pit for the wine press this would have been dug out of the rocks forming two vats one they they stomped on the grapes and uh, that would roll the juice would roll down into the to the lower vat um I don't know how they, I guess they don't make wine that way anymore today, do they? You know, kind of weird to think about, but maybe the alcohol kills the bacteria that's on people's feet. So they built a tower 15 to 20 feet high, so it's not a little tiny tower, good vantage point. This would have given them some area for shelter. If the weather turned bad, it would have given them an area to store perhaps some of their equipment, their tools, and but it was really used as a, as a vantage point to be able to look out over the entire vineyard. I think the bottom line for us to get is that great detail was given to the building of this vineyard, this garden. And you know as well as I do that when you plant a garden, if, if you don't do a good job of prep, you're going to have scrawny little unproductive plants, Right. But if you do a good job of prep, you're, you're going to have a nice, good uh, crop. In Isaiah 5.2, uh, again, back to Isaiah 5, it says he dug it and cleared of, it, of its stones. What's significant there? Why do you think the stones? It, Israel, is it rocky? Very rocky. I've read a book by Greg Harris a few years ago, and and it was, uh, he was talking about the temptation of Christ and when he was tempted by Satan in the wilderness. And, you know, what do we always hear? Yeah, you know, to turn this stone into bread. That, to us, doesn't sound like that big of a deal. But when you look at Israel, there are rocks everywhere. Now, take into the fact that you hadn't eaten in 40 days or 40 nights. And everywhere you looked is a rock. And then throw into the fact that probably every time your entire life for 30-something years that you walked into Mama's home, you would have smelled fresh bread baking on a daily basis, right? So I would imagine, as Dr. Harris says in this book, that he was probably salivating when Satan was saying that to him, you know, because he had he was so hungry and he hadn't eaten and all these rocks and the smell would come. And so... I think it's key point here for us to to know that they cleared it of its stone. So again, a lot of work, a lot of prep work was, had gone into this. God expected great things to come from this spiritual vineyard. That's why so much work was done. That's why all the detailed preparation. 
So he says, continues and tells us that he leased it to tenants and went into another country. Now, this was a common thing in Israel for an owner of a vineyard to do that, and he would negotiate a deal with them that would give him a, a, probably a minimum of a third and up to a half of what was produced. Um, but, of course, the tenants that Jesus spoke of here were the spiritual leaders of Israel, and these guys are standing there hearing this. And, and God's expectations, I mean, he did the prep work, and he did it right, and he, so his expectations were high. He expected the development of a people group who so radiated him that they would be a light to the Gentiles. But remember what we said when he cleared the temple? That was taking place in the court of the Gentiles. So the Gentiles, they, they couldn't even worship because the Jews were in there, turned the place into a market. And they were supposed to be a light to the Gentiles and they had become a, a, a hindrance to them. So a lot rested on the tenants, a lot rested on the spiritual leaders and they had to have in their minds as they're hearing this being taught in the temple with that massive painting on the wall over the door, they had to have started to come to the conclusion, you know what, we have blown it. And verse 2 then tells us that when the season came, he sent out a servant to the tenants to get from them some of the fruit of the vineyard. And this agreement had been previously made and, you know, I'll let you manage my vineyard, but when the harvest comes, you know, I get what's mine, agreed upon. But according to Leviticus 19, this would have been the fifth year. So these guys have been working this vineyard for five years, and the first three years of a planted vineyard were forbidden to, to eat the fruit, forbidden to, I don't know what they did with it, but they, that was the Levitical law, says Three years are forbidden. The fourth year, they, they harvested and they gave an offering to the Lord. And then the fifth year, the caretakers of the vineyard could do what they wanted to do with it, which would have been, this is when they would have harvest, harvested for profit. And that's why the owner sent uh, his workers or his servants to, to obtain it at that time. So he, he sent to collect and bring the master's... Uh, agreed upon portion of the grapes back to him. And he had authority. You know, he was a representative of the owner, just like we're ambassadors for Christ now. We have the, that authority. That's one of the uh, many blessings of the local church, I think, is to know that we're all ambassadors gathered together. We have authority to uh, minister the gospel of Jesus Christ. We have authority as uh, the as a board of elders over a local church to carry out the mandates of scripture. And that's perhaps, that's not what he's teaching here, but if you thought, I just want you to understand, you know, the authority thing that the owner, even though he wasn't the uh, one working that day to day, they had that agreed upon. I don't think it's a stretch to say, you know, that Jesus built the church and that he has placed tenants there the elders of the church to run it for him. And when that's not done properly, it's not a, not a good thing, right? So instead of giving them the harvested crops, what does verse three tell us? They beat him and sent him away empty handed. Now what's going on here? You know, these tenants proved that they were wicked, dishonest and cruel. The, the owner asked for what was his legal claim. I mean, he was entitled to that. 
and he was refused. But not only that, they seized him and they beat him, and he was released empty-handed. Now, I don't know about you, but if I were the owner and my servant comes back beaten and without any crop, I would expect the owner to, to react vigorously to that kind of treatment. But, of course, he didn't. He decided to give them another chance to do their duty and more opportunities from there. And verses 4 and 5 tell us that, again, he sent them another servant. They struck him on the head and treated him shamefully, sent another, and they killed him. And so with many others, some of them they beat and some they killed. So this ill treatment gets worse and worse, right? The first servant they beat and sent away. And that word beat originally meant to skin, skin them, right? Now, the commentators I read said that that had been softened by this point, so they didn't literally skin the guy, but you get the point, right? It wasn't just a little slap across the face. They beat him so severely that that same word was they skinned him. Uh, The second servant, seriously wounded and shamefully treated, uh, says they struck him in the head, that terminology appears nowhere else in the New Testament. Uh, it means having stoned, uh, stoned, stoned him, striking him in the head with rocks. Again, as we said, there were rocks everywhere, right? Well, by the third guy, only by the third one, they kill him. So now we've kind of got the climax of this, right? This was deliberate murder. And if that's not enough, then the, the summary statement there at the end is with many others, some they beat and some they killed. So they have no problem with trying to lay claim, you know what, you made a bad deal, buddy. Uh, But what I was just taken back by with this was the amazing forbearance of the owner, right? I mean, you talk about long-suffering as an owner. Um, I remember a guy telling me... uh, Early on, this was a long time ago when I was contemplating going into a counseling ministry, and and he told me he said, if you're going to do that, you need to know that you need you're going to have to be extremely long suffering with people. Now, what's wrong with that? We are what instant, you know? Why can't you understand that? Right? Just change, you know. Just I, I have been just in the last month with the national news of, of uh, the, the uh, heroin epidemic in our country and seeing what our government says to do, right? You know, our president was in Atlanta last week, Tuesday. Do you hear what he said? We're going to give $1.1 billion to help medically treat these heroin addicts. How do you interpret that? Medically treat. Give them, well, not more heroin, but methadone or, you know, may as well be, right? I I mean, really? You know, so I I get, I have to practice forbearance and long suffering. And uh, not only with, but you get my point. I mean, this, we can, if we're not careful in dealing with people, and that's part of what an ambassador does. Every one of us that's a believer are ambassadors again, and ambassadors deal with people, and we can't allow ourselves to fall into the trap that I fall into 
of, um, you know, if I'm the owner, like I said, man, I'm done. I'm going in with my AR and we're going to clean house here, right? And that's not what we're supposed to do. We're supposed to be long-suffering. And so we reach the climax of the parable after that. And what does Jesus do? He, he says, he, meaning God, right, had still one other, a beloved son. Finally, he sent him to them, saying, they will respect my son. But those tenants said to one another, this is the heir. Come, let us kill him, and the inheritance will be ours. And they took him, and they killed him, and threw him out of the vineyard. When you hear the word beloved son, what verse pops into your mind? This is my beloved son, in whom I am well pleased. Okay, great. Another. Yeah. You know, think about that. This is my beloved son who, in whom I'm well pleased. God so loved the world that he sent. You know, I, I remember counseling a couple one time years ago. Years ago. A long, long time ago. And this guy said to me, I can't remember what he said. I remember what I said. I said, no, he said to me, he said, well, what, what is love anyway? And I thought, uh-oh. And... Um, I quoted John 3.16, and he said, well, what do you mean? I said, well, think about that. For God so loved, you know, he took action, right? So first off, you need to love your wife with action. And for God so loved that he gave. Did we ask for the son? No, he gave. So God was fulfilling a need that we had. Did we have a need? Yeah. God was fulfilling a need that we had without us asking. That's love. So that's what's going on here. A beloved son. <clears throat> you get the intense love that's implied here. Finally, he sent his son. I'm sure thinking that certainly they're going to respect him. You know, they, they won't do anything to my son. They'll have to respect him. But what happened? You know, this was an impulse, right? <clears throat> they, they get together. And they start discussing it. So they're, they're plotting. And they talk to themselves about what to do with him. You know, premeditated, right? Wasn't impulsive. You know, some sins are, I thought about this this morning. Some sins are impulsive. But if you really think about it, at least mine are usually premeditated. I usually think about it for a while, you know. But, you know, I, th- I thought, okay, well, what would be an impulsive one? <clears throat> here's mine. Guy cuts me off in traffic. <laughs> you know, I used to have an air horn in my truck. A guy, a guy bought me an air horn. I mean, I'm talking about two mega horns under the hood with an air compressor in the bed of the truck. And I can blow the walls off with that thing. I took it out because I just would sin too much with it in there. But that's an impulsive sin, right? The first bump on the horn is anyway. The, the eighth and tenth one, not so much. But, but most sin is thought about, right? And um, that's what these guys were doing. And their reasoning brings them to, well, this is the error. Let us kill him. And guess what? <coughs> Once we do that, the inheritance, will, it's going to be ours. But you know what? They had to be really foolish, 
because they forgot something. Who sent the son? The father, right? And he's still alive. So, no, it's not going to be yours. The guy, the owner is still alive. You're not doing much of anything at all. Um, I uh, think that that just shows the, the foolishness of sin and, and, and how it so gets in our minds that we don't really even think rationally once we're in that pattern. And um, for the sake of time, I'm not going to have you turn there, but just listen as I read Psalm 2, 1 through 4. Why do the nations rage and the peoples plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed, saying, let us burst their bonds apart and cast away their cords from us. He who sits in the heavens laughs. The Lord holds them in derision. Think about that. The Lord laughs when we're doing our own thing and we're wanting God's help. Ha, 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 right? Ridicule, derision, mockery. Well, that also, I was going to unpack this, but we're not. One of my favorite passages is Proverbs chapter 1. I'm just going to read this real quick, this portion of it, and um, you'll get the point of the foolishness of sin. Wisdom calling out. You can't get away from it. It's in the noisy streets. It's at the city gates. It's in the markets. It's in the streets. You can't. It's there. It's everywhere. You can't say, well, I didn't know. Wisdom is crying out everywhere. And wisdom ends up in verse 23 saying, if you turn at my reproof, behold, I will pour out my spirit to you. I will make my words known to you. That's all we got to do, right? There it is. Because I have called and you refused to listen. I've stretched out my hand. No one paid attention. Because you have ignored all of my counsel and would have none of my reproof, I will also laugh at your calamity. I will mock when terror strikes you. When terror strikes you like a storm and your calamity comes like a whirlwind, when distress and anguish come upon you, then they will call upon me, but I will not answer. They will seek me diligently, but they will not find me because they hated knowledge and did not choose the fear of the Lord. Isn't that amazing? You know what I think of is... is when people get in trouble and they get in trouble with the law and they're sitting in jail, what happens? You know? Oh, God, please save me. I can just picture God laughing. I tried to help you and you didn't pay attention. <laughs> ha, ha, ha. You know, eat of your own ways, right? And that just shows the utter foolishness of sin. You know, I'm a Vietnam-era guy, and, you know, you guys would go out, bullets be flying over their head all day long, and, you know, everybody's praising God. Oh, help me, Jesus, right? Foxhole praying. They get back to the compound at night, and they're slamming beers and smoking weed and shooting heroin. What happened, right? The foolishness of sin. It's just, you know, and we got to, I mean, this is a stark warning to us. This is a judgment parable we need to be careful right so they took the son and they threw him out of the vineyard and um, they carry out their wicked plan and 
Um, I'm going to jump ahead here a little bit. So verse 9, what will the owner of the vineyard do? This is actually an invitation to the hearers to share in deciding the appropriate action to be taken against the murderers. And in Matthew, they answer him. Mark just doesn't give the answer. Jesus hears it, and they answer him, and they said, it says, he will put those wretches to a miserable death and let out the vineyard to other tenants who will give him the fruits of their seasons. You know, I think what you have here is Jesus accepted their answer, and he puts it in his own words, and he says, <clears throat> the owner's going to come and destroy the tenants and give the vineyard to others. And uh, in other words, the owner, not the tenants, triumph in the end. God wins, right? <laughs> Every time. And now the meaning of this parable is starting to surface to everybody. The owner is God and his son is Jesus. And Jesus confirms the verdict that he just announced to them by citing scriptural testimony from Psalm 118 and verse 10. Psalm 118, 22, but verse 10 of Mark 12 have you not read this scripture? The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. This is the Lord's doing, and it is marvelous in our eyes. So here's the bitter opponent standing there. They had to have been shocked at this point because, of course, they'd read this. Maybe not all the people, but the scribes, the elders, and the, uh, it was the third, chief, uh, chief, uh, the priest, right? They would have read this. And Jesus is like, have you not read? And whoa, right? They would have been familiar with that. And so his inquiry raised the question whether they understood what they read. He was showing them that these words reached their fulfillment with the owner's son. And he goes on and starts talking about the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. And we're at the climax now. And... The quotation begins with the thought of, okay, the rejection by the Jewish leaders, the tenants of the vineyard rejecting the sun, so the builders rejected the stone. The builders, those recognized and engaged in building the building, right, of the Lord's spiritual temple, they represent the priests and the Jewish, Jewish uh, religious leaders. So they're confronted with the stone, which is Christ himself, and they've, they have rejected him. So that gets back to what you were talking about. You know, they were confronted with it. They saw it. And they rejected. So he goes on. He says, this was the Lord's doing. Literally translated, this is from the Lord. And then he, he ends that with, and it is marvelous in our eyes. So God's reversal of the action of the builders is, is really correctly an object of wonder to those that really got it that were standing there, and it should be a wonder to us as well, because in an amazing way, God overrules the self-willed attempts of the sinful people to thwart his purposes. In other words, God is sovereign, and his will is going to be accomplished. Now, that should give us great hope, right? And so we look again and see in the scriptures, here we are in Mark 12, that again, God's will is accomplished. Now, the chief priests, the scribes, and the elders knew that he'd spoken against them. Verse 12 says, And they were seeking to arrest him, but feared the people, for they perceived that he had told the parable against them. So what kept them from carrying out their plan at that time? The fear, the, you know, what was it that caused them to fear the people? Well, they knew that the people held Jesus as a prophet, 
saw that in Matthew 21, just a few days before. In this case, the people were shouting hosannas to Christ. On a previous occasion, they tried to make him king. And during this week of Passover, again, don't lose sight of the fact of the hundreds of thousands of people that were there. You know, during this week, at least for the moment, his opponents recognized that they had not as yet found what they were looking for, and that was a way to destroy him. It's coming in a few days, but they hadn't found it yet, right? And this parable ends with, so they left him and went away. So baffled and helpless, they left in defeat, continued to plot their counsel in their private little chambers. But if you look back at chapter 11, uh, in verse 32, it says, but, but shall we say for man they were afraid of the people, for they all held that John really was a prophet. And then chapter 12, verse 12, and they were seeking to arrest him, but feared the people, for they perceived that he had told the parable against them. Um, next week, I, I just couldn't not go down a path of looking at the fear of man because I have found in people that I counsel and in my own life, probably more particularly, that is a common problem, right? So I want to look at that next week. It's going to take us away from this for a week, but I want to look at the the fear of man because twice in a few verses here, we see this. And so if they really were these big, powerful leaders, why are they scared of people? You know, if we're filled with the Spirit of God and ambassadors of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, why are we afraid of people and what they might do? So I want to look at that next week.